the blitz. Pass caught inside the five and taking it into the end zone. Des Bryant for the touchdown. Breaking news out of New Orleans. Veteran wide receiver Des Bryant has finally landed a gig and it is going to be in New Orleans with the Saints. Hello, everyone. Welcome to In the Game. I'm your host, Luke Shakota. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to be back after a little bit of a layoff there. I was a little bit under the weather, didn't have much of a voice, and it was not a pleasant experience for me. But I'm very happy to be happy to be back. I'm very happy to have you all back here with me. Here's what we have for you on the show. We are going to discuss a little bit what you just heard there. Des Bryant is now a New Orleans Saint. How about that? That Saints offense, I think, is going to be even much better than it already is. But yes, we'll get into that news as well as some other NFL news that came out during week nine. We will get to something that happened here locally in Chicago, which was the firing of now former Chicago Blackhawks head coach Joel Quenville. I have a lot to say about that as I wrote about it for sportsmockery.com. That article is not up yet, but it will be soon, hopefully. And I would like for you all to get a chance to read that. I I think you'll find it very enlightening. I'm a very enlightening person. Eh, not, not so much. But at the end of the show, I want to get into something that was kind of nagging at me while I was gone was the amount of offense that we are seeing all over the major league sports and just how just what what is perception and what is reality on that base so we'll get into all of that you can follow the show on twitter at in the game show where you can express your questions comments anything that you want to say concerning the topics that we will have for today but let's dive right into what we just heard des bryant is a new orleans saint and if the Saints offense was not great already, I think it just now is. I mean, look, Des Bryant was on the street for a reason. You know, he, he he probably isn't that good anymore to be a number one wide receiver. But in New Orleans, he's not going to be that. They already have a number one wide receiver in Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, I think I read a stat off of ESPN where he is commanding 70% of the targets, 70% of the receptions from Drew Brees and that New Orleans Saints offense, which is great if you're in fantasy football and you have Michael Thomas on your team. But if you're the Saints and you're trying to be a more dynamic offense where you already have guys like Thomas and Alvin Kamara and Mark Ingram when he's healthy and Benjamin Watson, the veteran tight end and Ted Ginn Jr., whenever he comes back, he's on IR right now. And if you're trying to be more of a robust offense than you already are, you're going to have to spread the ball around a little bit more. Because Michael Thomas, even though he's done all of this up to this point, he can't do the constant attention guy every single game, especially when the playoff picture is starting to make its way into form. And we'll discuss a little bit of that as we move forward here. But... This is big news, I think, for the New Orleans Saints and the New Orleans Saints fans where Des Bryant has something to prove. He really does have something to prove. He's going to be wearing number 88, which is what he wore when he was a Dallas Cowboy. I was a big fan of Des Bryant on the field. Off the field, not so much. He had a lot of he had a lot of controversies that he was dealing with as a member of the Cowboys. 
and I think a lot of that is still unresolved. Like there was the there was a time when he was he was caught in a controversy where ESPN's Adam Schefter said that there was a video of him in a Walmart parking lot where he assaulted a woman. And that story never really materialized. There were a lot of reports on it, but the video was never shown if there ever was a video. And there was really not much of anything that came out of it. But Des Bryant also had a history of being, had a history of having a bad relationship with his mother where there was a lot of physical violence between the two of them. But that's off the field. And I don't condone anything that he might have done or did do at all. But when it comes to on the field, he has something to prove. He's not a number one wide receiver anymore. You know, he's just he's not as fast as he used to be. He's not as it just seemed like he never really was good as a route runner in his final years as as a member of the Cowboys, but in New Orleans in a very very dynamic, specific you know, constant moving offense in New Orleans. You have to be on top of your game. You have to be on your toes, and you have to know exactly where it is that Drew Brees wants you to go. And can Des Bryant do that as a number two target? I think he can. And if Ted Ginn Jr. ever comes back, he Des Bryant may be the third option on that Saints offense as far as the wide receivers are concerned. Because right now it's just Michael Thomas and it's Alvin Kamara, it's Benjamin Watson, you know, it's just those guys that are really doing anything for that New Orleans Saints offense. And the Saints offense is great. It's the reason why they're now what are they eight and one, seven and one? I think they're eight and one now, and they are just an absolute dominant team. I think many projections have them ranked ranked third or fourth in percentage of making the playoffs behind teams like the Chiefs, the Patriots, and the Rams, even though they just beat the Rams, which I'm still trying to figure out why those percentages are the way they are. But nevertheless, this is a big addition for the Saints, and it comes at a time where the Saints realize that their their playoff window is shrinking given the fact that even though Drew Brees is still dominating, he's still 39 years old. Is he going to try to be Tom Brady where he's going to try to play until he's 45? No one really knows that, but their window is closing. And they have to start to win right now. Yeah, they're 7-1. The Saints are 7-1. and one. And as far as what has transpired throughout, throughout what happened last week in the NFL, one of the things I want to discuss is that Le'Veon Bell leaves Miami. For those that don't know, Bell was working out in Miami during his time where he was holding out and looking for a big money long-term contract with the Steelers. And, oh wow, something actually just crossed on my screen here. Breaking news on In the Game. It looks like, that is bad news. We just talked about Des Bryant, and now it looks like that he might have torn his Achilles tendon in practice. So forget everything that I just said. (laughs) Forget everything that I just said concerning Des Bryant and the New Orleans Saints and how they could be a better offense where it just looks like 
Des Bryant tore his Achilles tendon. This is from NFL.com. The New Orleans Saints fear newly signed wide receiver Des Bryant suffered a torn Achilles tendon in practice Friday. A source informed of the situation told NFL Network insider Ian Rappaport and NFL Network's Tom Pelissero. Bryant, who was helped off the field after suffering the injury, is undergoing an MRI to confirm the injury, Rappaport and Belisero report. He will get a second opinion on the injury after the MRI, Rappaport added. Bryant suffered the injury while running a routine route in practice, sources told NFL Network's Jane Slater. Bryant signed a one-year deal with the Saints on Wednesday and practiced with the team for the first time on Thursday, which was yesterday. And Des Bryant released a tweet saying, things was just starting to heat up for me. I won't question the man upstairs. This is the ultimate test. Thank you, everyone, for the prayers. Wow. This is really the first time that I've ever had breaking news on the show that concerns a story that I was just talking about. So, yes, if you were listening to the podcast for the first eight or so minutes... I apologize because all of the information, all of the opinions that I gave were for not because Des Bryant looks like he suffered a torn Achilles tendon. This literally just passed my desk. This just passed my computer right now saying that that Des Bryant suffered a torn Achilles tendon, possibly a torn Achilles tendon. That Seriously, that story was published at 4 o'clock. I started recording the show at around 4.20, and I just got that news, and it was just updated at 5 o'clock Eastern time. So, so yeah, that's... Uh, Boy, that sucks. That really does suck. I kind of, I kind of feel for for Dennis Bryant. And there is a video where shows him. I think it shows him like getting carted off or getting helped off in practice. But yeah, the Saints are back to square one. Is trying to find some solution to try to take some of the pressure off of Michael Thomas. So there's that news for you. But. As I was saying before, we got interrupted with that breaking news is that Le'Veon Bell says that that he's going back to Pittsburgh. He's in Pittsburgh right now, and Pittsburgh ownership has said that they think that Bell is going to report within the next week because the Pittsburgh Steelers just throttled the Carolina Panthers yesterday on Thursday night football, fifty-two to fourteen or fifty-two to twenty-one. Excuse me, fifty-two to twenty-one. It was. It was over after maybe the third touchdown by the Pittsburgh Steelers where Carolina just had no answer defensively. And that's a Carolina Panthers team that they're now 6-3. and three. They were 6-2 and two heading into Pittsburgh last night. And when you have guys like Luke Keekley and Eric Reed who got ejected yesterday because of an illegal hit to the head of Ben Roethlisberger... And also Julius Peppers, who seems to be ageless. He's still doing a couple of nice things for the Panthers. Boy, they got really exposed in a Le'Veon Bell-less team in the Steelers. They still have Antonio Brown, who just went off on the Panthers' defense, as did Ben Roethlisberger. I think Roethlisberger had a perfect QB rating. I think he did. He didn't throw an interception. I think he was at 82% passing. And he threw four, let's see here. I'm looking up the stats right now. It was just an unbelievable game to watch if you're a fan of offense. The Steelers were just dominant. Yes, Roethlisberger threw for five touchdowns. 22 for 25, 328, five touchdowns. That's a perfect quarterback 
rating, a perfect passer rating. So the the playoff picture in the NFL is starting to come to form as we are past the as we are going to pass the week ten the week ten portion of the NFL season. Right now, right now as it stands in the AFC, the seeds one through six are the Chiefs, the Patriots, the Chargers, the Steelers, the Texans, and the Bengals. In the NFC, we have the Rams, the Saints, the Panthers, the Bears, the Redskins, and the Vikings. This is a very interesting year because there are surprises in the NFL playoff picture right now. The Bears are there. They're leading the NFC North, although the Vikings are not far behind. They're going to go head-to-head in Week 11 after the Bears take on the Lions and the Vikings are going to battle with the... Who are they playing this week? Oh, wait, no, they're on a bye. Yes, yes, they are on a bye. The Vikings are on a bye. And what's also interesting is that the Redskins are a playoff team. After the Monday night game against the Saints, I thought they were done. I thought that at that point, when Drew Brees set the all-time passing record, that Jay Gruden was really on the hot seat. But they have, they have put together... They put together a nice streak in their last five games. They're three and two. They they lost last week, but they're still in the hunt. They're still right behind. They're still right in that division. They're leading that division. So it's very interesting to see that when it comes to some teams that are surprising this year, We have teams like the Texans. They're leading the division. I thought that the Colts would be much better than they are right now. I thought Jacksonville would be much better than they are. Jacksonville's defense is just not... It's not as good as it was last year, but their offense is just horrible. 134 points this year. They're just... They're They're terrible, terrible football to watch. And in fact, the Sunday night game next week where Jacksonville was supposed to take on the Steelers, that got flexed out, and now in its place are the Vikings against the Bears in Soldier Field. That's how bad the Jacksonville Jaguars are, but the Steelers still look pretty entertaining. The Falcons are still in it. I really want to see the Falcons try to make their way into this playoff picture. They're not going to win the division. They're not going to win the NFC South. There's no chance of that happening. But they can still be a wildcard team. They're at 500 right now. They've won three straight. I still think that they're in the hunt. Seattle has put together some nice games. They're 3-2. and two. Their defense has looked a little bit better. They've got the running game going a little bit more. But the Rams are just dominating that division. Their defense is a little bit suspect now because Marcus Peters did not look good against New Orleans. But... Hell, when you're playing in New Orleans, in the Mercedes-Benz Superdome, chances are you're not going to look that that good defensively. But this is an exciting time for the NFL. And it's going to relate to, to what I'm going to talk about at the very end of the show, considering offense. And there's a lot of offense to be spread around in the NFL right now, and it's very, very fun to watch. I hope you all are entertained, or just as entertained as I am, but there's two teams that I wanted to talk about specifically. The Green Bay Packers, they're a very, very bad team. I think right now, one outlet has them ranked 
or has them making the playoffs at a 20% rate. So they have a 20% chance of making the playoffs. And Randall Cobb said said as much, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said that this season feels a little bit different. And it does. It does in the way where Aaron Rodgers does not look like he can save this team. As great as Aaron Rodgers is, he looks a little bit healthier now after suffering a knee injury in week one against the Bears in Lambeau Field. But he doesn't look like he can save this team because the defense is horrible. They traded HaHa Clinton Dix, which I still don't understand. That is one of one of your best players and you get rid of him. I don't understand why they did that at a point where they were still in the race in the division. Hell, they're still in the race in the division, even though I don't think they're going to overtake the Bears nor the Vikings at this point. But the interior of that offensive line is bad. They don't have a running game. Aaron Rodgers is doing whatever he can. So is Devontae Adams. But... This Packers team feels so different. They're at a minus 12 point differential. That's not like the Packers. You know, they've had a history of having bad defenses, but usually the offense is able to carry them. And yes, they have a little bit of a tougher schedule this year, but this is this Packers team just doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good, but they could be worse. They could be the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys look horrendous after this past Monday night game against the Tennessee Titans in Dallas in AT&T Stadium where historically the the Cowboys are really not that good. They're really not that good in that building. Hall of Fame quarterback, former Cowboy Troy Aikman said that they need a complete overhaul. And I agree, but that's about five to seven years too late. We're way past that point. You know, Dak Prescott, I, I I like him as an athlete. I just don't think he's an accurate quarterback at all. And I understand he doesn't have help with his receivers. You know, Ezekiel Elliott just can't really do in, do much because the offensive line isn't what it used to be, especially since Travis Frederick isn't there. But Dak Prescott, whenever he has open receivers, he cannot hit them. I just don't think he's that accurate. And also, Jerry Jones being the complete bag that he is, the old raggedy bag bag with his balls hanging down to the ground, he expects to not make any coaching changes. And why would he? He's sitting comfortably. Jason Garrett is... Jason Garrett's a tool for Jerry Jones. And look, the, the Cowboys need a complete overhaul, but that's not going to happen because that's not what the Cowboys do unless Jerry Jones feels like it. They could surprise us at the end of the season, but I highly doubt that is going to happen. So if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, have fun with this because they are just a complete joke to watch. They are not America's team. They're more like North Korea's team. That's how bad they are. But we'll take our first time out of the show. And when we get back, I want to discuss something that happened here in Chicago that made this city a little bit somber this week and... If you're a Chicago Blackhawks fan, you may be feeling this way for a little while, but you have high hopes that you won't, but I think that you still will. So all that's coming up next on In the Game. Bill hands it off down lower, trying to. Good to see Jonathan Tate right back out here on this power play. 
And now it hits up on the netting, and the Hawks are saying uh, that this might be a delay of game. The officials are going to talk it over. They're conferring. It definitely hit the netting. Yeah. And this, is what, this is one of the buildings, Brian, that uses the light-colored netting. It's much easier to see when that puck hits it. And uh, now the officials are trying to get some separation so they can talk it over. I, I saw one of the referees look like he indicated it was a deflection. It's going to happen from behind the net. Shattenkirk shoots it, and you can see Shaw's stick is in there. But Shaw's obviously going to, well, he's going to claim that it was shot directly over the glass. They want that call. Well, you see what uh, Joel Quenville yeah. thinks. I mean, there's no question the puck's out of play. Yeah. And what is the call going to be? No, not a penalty. That, that was the initial indication that I saw from Mark Jonette. I saw her, his first initial indication, which is why Jonathan Taves is over there, and so is David Backus, the two captains, talking to the referee. He made that motion with, with both hands as if it was a deflection. So Chicago doesn't get what they want. Yes, that was game one of round one in the 2014 NHL playoffs in which the Blackhawks were going against the St. Louis Blues. And now former head coach Joe Quinville grabbed his balls in a in rage against the referees when he thought there should have been a delay of game penalty. Still the greatest thing I think Joel Quinville ever did. It certainly was not one of the three Stanley Cups that he helped the Blackhawks win. It was the crotch grab. It was amazing. It was all over Twitter when it happened. It was all over Instagram when it happened. Hell, it's still all over Instagram given the news that happened this week. Joel Quinville has been let go as the head coach for the Chicago Blackhawks after 10 years. He is the second winningest coach. Is that even a phrase? If, it, if it's not, I just made it up. He has the second most wins of any head coach in NHL history at 890. I believe he's third in playoff wins. Yes, he's third behind Al Arbor and, of course, Scotty Bowman, who is a special advisor to the Blackhawks, by the way. Joe Quimble has 118 playoff wins, and this was a sad time, and it's still a sad time for the city of Chicago and for all Blackhawks fans, and I'm one of them. I love watching the Blackhawks, or at least I used to before they have gone completely down the tubes. They've now lost six in a row, and last night was the debut of new Blackhawks head coach Jeremy Colleton. The Hawks lost 4-3 to three to the Carolina Hurricanes after starting the first period. Just, oh my God. I seriously wanted to dump my head in the toilet and give myself, uh, what, what, is that, what is that called where you just flush the toilet on your head? It's some phrase. Somebody tweet tweet at me and tell me what that phrase is or what that, that, that slang term is, whatever it is. But I really wanted to do that because that is how bad the Blackhawks were in that first period. They were so awful. And I give them some credit because they were down four to nothing and they scored three straight goals and made it a game at the very end. But that defense is so bad, especially in their own zone. I cannot watch that. Every time I watch the center of their zone, the center of their own zone, there's open ice for the opposing team to take wide open in the slot 
and it's just one pass away, and then it's just one shot away from being a goal. That's how bad that Blackhawks off or defense is in their own zone, in the center of the zone, right in the high slot. It's so bad, and I just I just can't stand it. I just can't watch. I just can't stand watching them. But I watch them nonetheless, especially given the intrigue behind Jeremy Colleton, the 33-year-old head coach who retired as a player because of constant issues with concussions and 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 concussive concussive problems that he would have. He's now the head coach of the Blackhawks. And he is replacing a legend, a future Hall of Fame head coach. And I suspect that Joel Quinville is going to be out of work for not too long. But that's if he wants to still coach. I think any team's going to hire him. And I wrote about this for sportsmockery.com. It's not up yet, but hopefully it will be soon. And I hope you all will go and take a read at that that there is a much larger picture here as the Blackhawks are concerned because this dude made this news made national news at least national hockey news you know everyone was talking about this a lot of a lot of people were saying how could you get rid of this guy how could you get rid of the second best coach in NHL history and also not get rid of the general manager or Maybe trade away some pieces, or why would you even fire anyone? It was just a five-game losing streak. You've been down that road. You've been down that road before. Why not just try to ride out the storm and see what you can do? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of backstory to how this all unfolded, and I want to start in pieces. And this is how I wrote it for for the article for sportsmockery.com. I want to start it in pieces. Let's start with Joel Quenville himself. Joel Quenville, given how great of a coach he was and still is, he he was not without faults. He was not without his own miscues and mishaps during his time with the Blackhawks, even though he won three Stanley Cups. One of the things was that the power play was terrible. For the majority of his tenure, he and his coaching staff could never figure out the power play. There were some years where the Blackhawks power play was really good. For example, the 2010 Cup run, the power play was pretty good. But it was never never where it should have been given the skill players that they had like Jonathan Taves, Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith, you know Patrick Sharp when he was there and still at the peak of his powers. It goes on and up. Marion Hossa, Brandon Saad when he wasn't a complete dud like he is now. I mean, he's played better, but last year he was just so bad. But the power play was never fixed at a full-time level, at a long-term level. It was never what it should have been given the amount of talent that they had. So that was one issue that he had. Another issue, I mean, I mean, I should go back to the power play for a second. The power play issues were always masked by how good the penalty kill was for the Blackhawks when they had a really, really good penalty kill. And in 2013, their penalty kill was outstanding. When they won the Stanley Cup in 2013, it didn't matter if the opposing team was on a power play because that penalty kill was going to shut it down almost every time. 
And also, when the Hawks were winning, they were a great 5-on-5 team because they were just so damn fast and so damn skilled. So that was one issue with the power play. The other issue was was his lack of of seemingly at least perception is reality of not playing young players or at least not playing them in the right spots. And I go back to players and Blackhawks fans will remember these names, guys like Nick Letty, Tavo Teravainen. I wonder if Steven Johns ever got a chance to play with the Blackhawks who is now a defenseman for the Dallas Stars. I wonder if he would have ever been given a chance to play. I mean, Henry Yoki Haru, who's 19 years old and is now playing on the top line for the Hawks with Duncan Keith. I mean, maybe, but not 100% sure. Other guys like Vinny Hinestroza, Ryan Hartman. You know, these guys were talented, good young draft picks that the Blackhawks selected and Joel Quinville for all of his trying to tinker with the lines and trying to see which combinations worked and which ones didn't, you know, sometimes if you're if you're a hockey observer and you're watching this, sometimes you just think to yourself, you know what? You just got to give these guys the best opportunity to play the way that they want to play, the play the way that you drafted them for. You know, Tavo Teravainen is a guy who automatically comes to my mind because he was always a guy that was being put on the third line as a center or a wing, and that's a checking line. It was a checking line for the Blackhawks. So you're telling me that Tavo Teravainen can excel as being a checking right winger or left winger or center? Like, come on. Put him on a line with Patrick Kane and see what he can do. There's so much skill on that line. See what see what you could do with that. It just never really materialized that way. And a lot of a lot of in-town reporters like Mark Lazarus of the Chicago Sun Times often said that Quenville loved Tara Vinen because Tara Vinen was so was so was so gifted as a player that he could have done anything. That he was so versatile that he could be a a shutdown defensive player. Now, I can understand that, but the problem becomes is that when you have someone who is that skilled, allow them to use that skill to their advantage and to your advantage. And there were too many times when that didn't happen. So that's Joe Quinville. That's what that's the part that he played in his eventual downfall with the Blackhawks. But there's other different kinds of layers to this. Layers. There's other different kinds of layers to this story. And it's 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 causing many here in Chicago to wonder if the Blackhawks are really are really stable. Are they a stable organization that that everyone assumes that they were? So this goes to upper management. General Manager Stan Bowman. I think that he's still on the hot seat potentially, even though I think it's more unlikely now that he gets fired because Jeremy Colleton is his guy, and I think it would be foolish for the 
for John McDonough, the president, and Rocky Wartz, the owner, to fire Stan Bowman at this point, given the fact that you just hired a 33-year-old coach, and this is your general manager's pick. This is this is Stan Bowman's first head coaching hire. Think about that. And that's insane to think about. But there's something else to this, too, where Stan Bowman has found himself in a very quirky situation with his father, who, again, is a special advisor to the Blackhawks. Or of the Blackhawks, I should say. Scotty Bowman... Scotty Bowman, when he was a head coach in his time, he had an assistant head coach, or assistant coach, I should say, named Barry Smith. And Smith is now an assistant coach for the Blackhawks, for Jeremy Colleton. And there were times... Because Barry Smith has been employed with the Blackhawks for a while as as an advisor. He was working in hockey operations for a long time in the upper offices of the Blackhawks. There were times when Smith and Quenville butted heads. It was around March of 2012 when Barry Smith was brought down from, from the office to the ice, to the practice the practice ice, to try to help with the Blackhawks' anemic power play. And Quenville complained to Stan Bowman, saying, hey, why is this guy here? You know, he should kick him out. Get this, get his ass out of here. I don't want him here. I don't want him interfering with our business. And there was also a time in 2015, after the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup against the Tampa Bay Lightning, where Barry Smith came down onto the ice to celebrate the win, and Quenville asked for him to be removed. And so Smith left. So that's one part of this where it just seems like there's a little bit of a little bit of a butting heads dynamic, a little bit of a tough dynamic going on where it just looks like that the Blackhawks management is just not that stable. So that's one part of it. And, you know, it's really amazing to me to know these stories and think to myself that, hey, Barry Smith is now an assistant coach of the Blackhawks. But heading back to Stan Bowman, he has done a very good job of reworking the Blackhawks to be to be now three Stanley Cup winners with the core that they have had. When he's drafted guys like Philip Denal and and Ryan Hartman and Tavo Tara Vinen and Alex Debrinkit and Nick Schmaltz and Henry Yoki Haru, these are guys that he drafted. And they played critical roles on Stanley Cup winning teams and on playoff contending teams. The problem that I have had all along with Stan Bowman is that he has handicapped this team to such a high degree with the amount of contracts and big money contracts to players that did not deserve them and has led now to the seemingly phasing out of the golden age of Blackhawks hockey. In a hard cap league like the NHL is, you cannot do that. And what's interesting is that John McDonough, 
said that after they fired the now former general manager for the Blackhawks, Dale Talon. You know, Dale Talon was the guy who drafted Taves and Kane and Keith and Seabrook. After they fired Dale Talon, the reason why they fired him was because, and I'm quoting John McDonough, they wanted to be, quote, more financially responsible. What do you call where you are right now? You're not financially responsible. You don't sign an aging, slowing Brent Seabrook to an eight-year big money contract with a no-movement clause and say that you're being financially responsible. You don't give a contract extension to Artem Anisimov immediately after you trade for him when he really didn't prove anything on your team yet. You don't give a contract to Brian Bickle after he had a great 2013 playoff run. Now, I understand, I understand, and I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this, but I also I understand that he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a couple of years after he got that contract, which is probably the reason why, not probably, it is the reason, why he wasn't, he ended up not being as productive of a, of a player as he was. I get that. But there were questions at the time that he got that deal, before he got the diagnosis, as to whether or not he deserved that contract. And contracts like that have forced you to trade guys like Kenestroza, Hartman, Taravine, and Letty, all of these guys that were good, young, fast guys that could still be contributing to this team right now. So this is so hard for me because, yes, was it probably time for Quenville to go after 10 years? Yes. But there's more to this. There's a bigger picture to this. And it's so tough to watch because I want to see the Blackhawks su- succeed. They're fun when they're playing. It's great for the NHL. The NHL wants the Blackhawks to be great. They want them to be great. Especially when you have teams like the New York Rangers who are not good. You need your original six big market teams to play well. And at this point, all you can hope for if you're a Blackhawks fan is that Jeremy Colleton, being the young hip coach who is focused on analytics gets this team back to where it should be and at least being a playoff contender. That's your only hope. Can that happen? We'll wait and see. It's still very early in the season. The Hawks got off to a great start. They were 6-2-2, I believe, to start the year, and now they're 6-7-2. So this is a tough tough time for the Chicago Blackhawks. All good things must come to an end, given that you're in a hard-cap league. I understand that. But it was so much fun when the Hawks were playing so well. It was great for the city. It was great for the league. It was great for so many fans, including this one, yours truly. But now the Hawks find themselves at 13th place in the Western Conference at 6, six 7, and 3. And they've lost 5 straight, or 6 straight. So it's a tough time. Still early days in this year. So we'll see what Jeremy Colleton has up his sleeve as the season progresses. Can he be a good young revolutionary coach? Possibly. Can he be Joel Quinville? Not a chance. You're talking about the second best coach in NHL history. He's not going to reach that even though he is that young. 
But we'll take our final time out of the show. When we get back, I want to discuss a growing trend in the top the top major league sports in America and how it is both perception and reality and why both are very, very exciting. So stick around for that next on In The Game. Welcome back to In The Game. So I wanted to discuss... You know, this show for this week is not so much about stories as it is about about more information that I have been thinking about for the last couple of weeks while I have been off due to a series of illnesses. One of the things that I've been thinking about that is both perception and reality is the seemingly amount of high high efficiency of offense in all major league sports in America. There is both a perception and a reality here when it comes to the amount of points that are scored, the amount of goals that are scored in in hockey specifically, but points that are scored in the NBA, the NFL, the amount of runs that are scored in MLB. There's a perception and reality in what is happening with these offenses. So I want to break this down here for everyone. We're going to have some fun with math. Oh, goody. But I promise you. I know what you're thinking. I promise you. This is going to be fun. Because I find all of this very fascinating. I really love playing with numbers. I really love trying to take in-depth analysis. That's what this show is all about. It's taking in-depth much broader analysis on the stories that we see in the headlines from the past sports week. But for this one, I ask the simple question to everyone, and please respond on Twitter at In The Game Show. Is scoring up in all major league sports? I'm not asking for you to give me numbers. I'm not asking for you to give me stats. I'm asking for your perception. Do you think that scoring is up in all Major League Sports? If you say yes, then in a lot of cases, the numbers back that up. In others, not so much, but the perception seems that way. So I want to start with the NBA. The NBA is very, it's very weird. (laughs) It's very weird in that scoring is not technically up. But perception of it is up. Or the perception that scoring is up in the NBA, it seems to be that way. So I want I wanted to look at the I wanted to look at comparisons from the 1980s to now. Because really since the ABA NBA merger in 1976, that is when the modern NBA, or at least the NBA that we have seen in the last 30, 40 years really started to take shape. So I wanted to eliminate some I wanted to eliminate some factors here when it came to how we analyze whether or not scoring is up in the NBA. One of the ways is to eliminate the years before 1976 because before that we in the NBA there were not as many teams playing there there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of very skilled players that could match up against big men like Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain and the list goes on. 
but I wanted to take a look at it a little bit more closely in that everything before 1976, we can eliminate. In the 1980s, it's a little bit different. And basketballreference.com has this has this pointed out in when it reflects in points per game. Right now, everything before 1976, or everything after 1976, I should say, scoring goes as follows in points per game. Right now, the number one year in points per game for the entire NBA, the number one year in that category so far, not as many games played, but it's this year, at 152 games, 111.5 points per game. That's insane. The second is 1984-1985 at 110.8 points per game in 943 games. That's another factor is that before 1976, not as many games were being played. In nine, And the next year is 85-86 at 110. Then it's 83-84, And the next year that we get to in the new millennium, the next time that we see the 2000s is 2017 to 18 at 106.3 points per game. And we don't get into the 90s until after that, 90 to 91, 106.3 points per game. And what's interesting about this, though, what's very interesting is that even though scoring may not be up compared to what it was in the 80s in terms of points per game, just that category, the perception of it is the perception that scoring is up seems to be the case. That seems to be undeniable because of one thing, the three-point shot. The three-point shot. Before we saw, like in the 90s and the 80s, NBA scoring from three accounted for 8% of total points scored in the NBA. Now... 30% of all NBA scoring is from three. Think about that. Think about how big of a jump that is. Hell, even in in the early 2000s, it wasn't that way. It wasn't at 30%. Not a lot of of guys were taking three-point shots. It was all about the dunk, trying to feed the ball inside to the big man and see if he can dominate in the paint. It wasn't all about that. Or trying to drive to the net with a bunch of screen and roll and try to pass as much as possible to get the easy shot. Now, the easy shot for a lot of these shooters is the three. And... The big man is sh- is shooting the three. Think about it. You have guys like Anthony Davis who are shooting the three ball very well. You have guys like you have guys like like Lowry Marketing here locally in in Chicago. He can shoot the three. Dirk Nowitzki, he re- he probably started the trend of having big men shoot the three very well. So you're, you're talking about you're talking about a revolution in 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 the amount of players that are wanting to shoot the three ball and the amount of big men who are wanting to shoot the three ball. Chris Stapps Porzingis, another guy who can shoot the three. Kevin Durant, 
LeBron James can shoot the three, can shoot the three a little bit better than he used to. And and also to supplement that with guys like Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, James Harden, you know, Chris Paul, who could shoot the three. Hell, Giannis Antetokounmpo, he can shoot the three. Another big man that can shoot. So perception of scoring being up is there with the NBA. Even though the numbers may not fully reflect that, with the amount of threes that are being shot and scored, that perception of scoring is there. So there's the perception side of it, but let's go on to the perception and facts side of it. And that is, of course, the NFL. Scoring and passing in the NFL is completely up. It's from profootballreference.com. The amount of points per game. Last year, with 32 teams, 24 points per game. That's ranked number one in the all-time leading NFL seasons in terms of points per game. Last year is ranked number one. Second is 1948, but I would eliminate that altogether because there were only 10 teams playing and not as many not as many games, so those numbers are a little bit skewed. So let's just try to focus in on the modern era a little bit more. They have 2013 would be ranked second in that case at 23.4 points per game. 2015, 22.8, 2012, 22.8, 2016, 22.7. 2014, 22.6, 2011, 22, 2010, 22, 2008, 22. We really don't get into into before the 2000s until 1983 at 21.8 points per game when there were 28 teams playing at that time. But then we get to 2017 at 21.7 points per game. So perception and reality match in the case of the NFL. When you have the golden age, I think, of quarterbacks, when you have guys like Patrick Mahomes, Drew Brees, who I said earlier set the all-time passing yards record, defeating guys like Brett Favre and Peyton Manning. And here's something else for you, too. The Kansas City Chiefs are just blowing out teams with the amount of offense that they have. This was when they were on the Sunday night game against, I believe it was at home against the Bengals. Yes, it was against the Bengals on October 21st. I had to write this down. In Patrick Mahomes' first start, the Chiefs scored 27 points. Second start, 38 points. Third start, 42. Fourth start, 38 points. Fifth start, 27 points. Sixth sixth start, 30 points. Seventh start, 40 points. I mean... The, the amount of offense from that we're seeing from quarterbacks and teams like the Chiefs, the Rams, the Saints, even the Bears who are scoring at a high rate, the, the Steelers, these teams are scoring. They're scoring well with the amount of passing that, that we're seeing with the innovative offenses led by guys like Andy Reid and Sean McVay and Sean Payton. These offenses are destroying records. They're destroying NFL offense as we have come to know it when you look at it from a much larger perspective when it comes to NFL history. They're shattering these records. And holy crap is it sports porn. If you love sports, you should be watching the NFL right now. It is offense porn 
for you. This is amazing what we're seeing in the NFL right now. But we're also seeing some amazing things in Major League Baseball in the amount of runs that are being scored. Now, perception and reality are a little bit skewed here in that 2000, the year 2000 is when we saw the amount of runs scored total throughout Major League Baseball at almost 25,000 runs. Then it was 1999, again, around 24 and a half, 24,691 runs, 2004, or excuse me, 2006, then 2004, 2007, 1998, 2001, 2003, 1996. What do all those years have in common? They're, they're at the heart of the steroid era, <laughs> right? They're at the heart of the steroid era. That is when we saw so much scoring going on, when you had guys like Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa leading the pack to try to break break the home run record and how and you know chicks dig the long ball all of those things that's when we saw just amazing things from baseball but it seems as if the amount of runs that are scored in baseball is up now because of the home run and i know it sounds like a little bit of a paradox because i just said the steroid era but we're seeing a record amount of home runs in the last few years in baseball 2017, 6,105. That's number one in the amount of home runs for any season in Major League Baseball. And it's 2,000, 5,693. 2016, 5,610. 2018, last year, 5585. So at least in the last few years, because ranked 16th and 17th are 2012 and 2015, respectively, at almost 5,000 home runs. 4,900, give, give or take a few of them. And that's 2013 at 4,661, ranked 19th. So, so the perception is certainly there, but some of the numbers do back it up in that home runs are at an all-time high. But what comes with the amount of home runs? Strikeouts. There's been a lot of strikeouts. And the emphasis that teams are putting on their hitters are launch angle. You know, trying to get that ball to to just get, to just lift it right out of the park. Get a rainbow shot, shoot it 490 feet out of the park. And also, what we saw in the last couple of years, not this past year, but before that, was that there were reports that the ball was juiced. And that it was bouncier. It, it was a little bit. It was a little bit. It was a little bit bigger. So the so the players were able to see the ball a little bit better, and they were able to just bounce that thing out of there like it was a tennis ball to hit that thing out of the park. So some of the numbers do support the perception of scoring being up in Major League Baseball, but when we get to the NHL, it's not so much because. It's a little bit wonky in this case because the 1980s were just were just filled with so many goals. They were just filled with so many goals. When you had guys like, obviously, the great one, Wayne Gretzky, who scored 92 goals at one point in the... Oh, wait, no, this was... Uh, 
Yeah, I'm reading this a little bit differently. But but Wayne Gretzky was so great in the 80s. But you also had guys like Mike Bossy and Dino Cicerelli and Brian Trottier, Mark Messier, who was Gretzky's teammate at the time, uh, Peter Stastny. These guys were dominating the amount of goals that were scored. Mario Lemieux, Yarmir Yager. These guys were killing it by lighting up the lamp. But given that scoring went down in the 2000s, it has come right back up. And there are several reasons for this. One of which is the amount of power plays that are being that are being taken. Or I should say given to teams. There are so many power plays that are that are given to teams and so many power play goals. Average power plays per game are now at three. That's a lot of power plays a game. Look at last year it was at 3.4, year before that, three, 3.1 before that, 3.1 before that, 3.3 before that. And what we're seeing is that teams are playing a 1-3-1 style of power play, the Washington Capitals style of power play, where you line up a right-handed shot on the left wing and then a left-handed shot on the right wing, and you hope to get some one-timers and get goals that way. But there's also a bunch of net front presence that's being that's being played by the NHL. The NHL is much faster now. It's it started being fast really at around when Sidney Crosby and Ovechkin and Taves started to make their way into the NHL. We saw a much faster paced game where teams are not really focusing on trying to be the tough grit hard hockey teams anymore. They're trying to be faster. They're trying to shoot the puck more. They're trying to do all of these things to try to score more. So the 80s are a little bit of a mirage or a little bit of an outlier in terms of how we perceive goal scoring in the NHL. But perception seems to be that scoring is up in the NHL because of the quickness and the speed at which these players play now. So I thought it was very interesting to see these numbers because you know really when you look at when you look at these teams that are trying to to put more of an emphasis on offense because fans love it. I mean there's also a part of me that really likes to see good playing defense as well, but I'll take great offense over great defense any day of the week. I love seeing those scoreboards get racked with so many high numbers of points but i hope you all found that very interesting i hope you found this show very interesting i want to thank nhl nbc sports net nfl nfl network for the sounds that you heard today want to thank all of you for listening you can follow the show on twitter at in the game show we'll be back next week with more news and until then i'm luke shakota saying be sure to keep your heads in the game